Well, I'm just so stoked right now because, you know, the women had their women's conference this last weekend, but during the women's conference, I actually got out of town and had my own little men's retreat. And it was, it was me and three other guys. We left early on Thursday morning and we went up to Yosemite. And we, I, you know, I haven't been to Yosemite since I was in high school. And I just, I, you know, I felt like once, once I got there, I felt convicted. Like, how have I not been here since high school? This is amazing. This part of God's creation is just so glorious. And so we, we parked, we hiked up, you know, about six miles. And then there's a campsite up there. We camped. And then the next morning at four in the morning, we got up and we had our headlamps on and our gear and it was just so cold. And we hiked from that camp four more miles up to Half Dome. You know, you've seen Half Dome in the pictures and all of that, right? We hiked up to Half Dome. And I was just, you know, we were going to go up to the top of Half Dome. Normally they have like poles in the rock with these cables that you walk up, but there comes a time of the year, I guess, where they take the poles out and all there are these cables lying on the ground. You have to put on a harness and strap in. These guys are teaching me how to like tie these knots and stuff. I'm like, I don't know if I got this knot, man. And, uh, you know, it was all dark. I couldn't see, you know, you're going up these rock steps to get up there. It just felt like you take one step this way, one step that way, you're just going to fall 7,000 feet, you know, and I'm afraid of heights, you know, so... (laughs) Uh, Josh Shively, Pastor Josh, was the one leading our little group, and he asked me when we were getting close to the time where we had to strap into the cables, he's like, how you doing, Nate? I'm like, I'm in a bad place mentally. That was my answer to him. You know, we're trying to beat the sun so we could see the sunrise up there, you know, we're, we're cl- going up the cables, you know, I'm just like looking at my kids, just me and my cable, man, just me and my cable, don't, don't look, you know, and, but then I just saw this like light, you know, and over in the, to my left, and it was the, it was the sunrise, you know, I just shouted, I'm like, sunrise, you know, we all looked over, you know, and we got to the top, we had breakfast, hung out there for an hour or so before anybody else even got there, you know, just had the rock to ourselves, you know, it was just so cool. And we came down, you know, just had a beautiful time, walked down uh, yesterday, you know, and drove home. But I just loved the time, both because it was beautiful and, you know, strenuous physically, which I love and all of that. But each guy that was there, you know, myself, I, I, was, the, I was the old guy, so I had, to, I had to prove my mettle, you know, I had to show these young bucks some old man strength. But, uh, but, but the, all the other guys were just these young young pastors, you know, in their, in their 20s or early 30s. And, you know, it's three days of just talking about the Lord, talking about serving Him, talking about, you know, what God's doing in our lives. And I tell you what, I, I just, I came down and I just, I just had my headphones in, was just kind of by myself for a little bit. And I just thought, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for, for men and women of God like, like that. I'm just so thankful, and, and honestly, the, the sense that I had was just, if this is what the future holds, guys and gals like this, if this is what the future holds, God has a beautiful harvest in store, because it was just, it was just like, man, these, these people, they're just all in for the Lord. This chapter that's in front of us today, we're going to see people like that, first in David but also in his mighty men who served with him, 37 of them in number, three who were the chief of his 37, and then the rest of them 
They were just devoted to David. David was devoted to the Lord, and they were all working so hard for God's glory and for God's kingdom. And I know it's an Old Testament passage. There's a lot of you know, war and battles and things like that. We're not going to do the same exact things in our service of the Lord today uh, in the exact kind of way. We're not protecting the promised land, for instance. But there are beautiful lessons here, things that God was doing in them that I think he wants to do in us as well. So what we're going to look at first is uh, David and his last words to the people of Israel. So let's read the first seven verses of this chapter together. It says, verse one, now these are the last words of David. Now, now when you read that, if you're like me, what you uh, envision or imagine right away is an elderly David on his deathbed. It's kind of like the last breath. This is what he says. And you shouldn't have that image. You should have an image of him in his older years. But what this is, is not his last, like the last thing he ever said. It's his last poetic, last kingly, last psalm word that he gave to the people of Israel. Kind of his, his, you could say like this, his final literary kingly work for the people of Israel. Okay, so this is what he says. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord, verse two, speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he, that being God, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, let me just pause there right, right there and just ask you, wouldn't you love that to be the description of your life? That's what David is describing. He says, you know, when, when, when one rules justly, this is what happens. God dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Very poetic, beautiful, but wouldn't you love that, right? Some of you don't. You don't want that, some of you. I, I felt like it's very good. I think it's a great description. And he goes on to say, verse 5, for does not my house stand so with God? He points to his own family, his own house. Isn't that what's happening here? He says, for he has made with me, God making with David, an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. You know, you get involved with these guys, it's just war. And they are utterly, David says, consumed with fire. Now I want to point out to you just from this last word from David, a few different elements of this man's heart. Number one, it's so telling to consider how David viewed himself. Remember, this is an older man looking back on now decades of serving the Lord. He's written so many psalms for God. He has led the people of God into so many battles, and he's gone through so many very difficult trials. And he looks back on his life. Remember, he's a king. He's won wars. He's killed Goliath. He's conquered the Philistines. He's subdued the nations. And 
Not only was he a warrior, but he was a king who was very successful in expanding the borders of Israel. He found Jerusalem, captured it, established it as the capital city of God's people. He, in a lot of ways, you could really look at David's life and say, what David did was serve as an instrument to fulfill so many of the promises that God made to Abraham. You know, God had promised Abraham this land and all of that. David went in and he actually took it. He expanded the borders, all of that. And so God really used him in a lot of ways. But when it came time for David to talk about his own life, did you notice there in verse 1 that he did not refer to himself as the king? He did not refer to himself as the slayer of giants. He referred to himself, listen to this, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. That has always stood out to me. That as he looked back upon his life, all of the other things of David's life seemed to be undergirded and rooted in this fact that he was a man who had a personal relationship with the living God. Because that's what the Psalms were. The Psalms were David's prayer life to God. David's relationship with God. And so the first thing I want you to see here about David was that he was a man in personal relationship with the living God. You know, I'm, I make jokes about me getting old and stuff like that and being middle-aged and, you know, all of that. But honestly, you know, when you turn 40 years old, you do kind of start like thinking about things, you know, like what, what's the goal here? What am I doing with my life? You know, stuff like that. And I'm, I'm not like about to go through any midlife crisis or anything like that. I'm, 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 I'm happy to say I'm on the right track. You know, I'm, I'm doing what the Lord has asked me to do. But, you know, just pastorally, I kind of ask that question, like what is the goal for the lives of the people that God has allowed me to be a, a, a shepherd, a caretaker, a pastor for? You know, and one answer that just always comes back to me, it's, it, 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 it's just simply this, that individual human beings could tap into, discover, experience a personal relationship with the living God. You know, in the Old Testament, that seemed to be the center of really what God was doing. He said to the people of Israel, I want to make you into a kingdom of priests. In other words, I want to make you into a people who have access to me, who are in fellowship with me, who pray to me, who cry out to me, who are, who are dependent upon me. And then in the New Testament era, we're told that we are made into a kingdom of priests by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, one thing that you could say is that God's chiefest desire for his people is that we would enter as fully and completely as we possibly can into a personally intimate experience and relationship with him. That's a real longing of, of my heart personally. Because, you know, I know that sermons can shape people. I've been shaped by books and teachings and sermons more times than I can count. So I know that. I know the power uh, of the expressed word of God. God has decided to impart his strength and his ministry, the work of his spirit into this act that we're doing, the reading, explaining, and applying of God's word. But I also understand that absolutely nothing can beat the voice of your father if every day of your life there's an opportunity for him to talk to your heart. 
Every day there's a chance for him to speak to you and, and for you to speak to him. This is what the Lord wants to draw you into. And David looked at his life and he says, this is what I am. I might be the king and all of that, but before all of that, I'm the psalmist. I'm the prayer leader of Israel, crying out to the living God. Another thing that you should see about David comes in verse 2. There's this little thing where David just simply says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, that's actually interesting because it's a statement that expresses that David understood that when he was writing the Psalms, at least some of them, uh, he had at, at moments, if not at all of those moments, an understanding that the Spirit of God was the one carrying him along and inspiring him to write what he wrote. In other words, it's a little insight into the process of divine revelation in Scripture. David, at least, as one of the authors of Scripture, had a consciousness that the Spirit of God was working through him as he put down these truths for the people of Israel. This is reiterated, actually, in the New Testament. There was a time in Acts chapter 4 when the church got together. It was after a unique time of persecution that had come upon them. So they got together for a prayer meeting. When the church is persecuted, that's a great response, to cry out to the Lord in prayer. And in prayer, one of the things that they said in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, is they quoted one of David's psalms, and they said, You spoke that, God, through the mouth of your father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit. So they had an understanding. When David wrote that psalm, he was saying it by the power of the Spirit. Peter also had a similar perspective when on the day of Pentecost, he preached to thousands of people that had gathered together. And in quoting from one of David's psalms, he said, David, being therefore a prophet, foresaw and spoke on behalf of the Lord. So he understood that David had been carried along by the Spirit as he wrote down these various psalms. But Jesus himself also had the same perspective about David. He said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 43, in quoting David in Psalm 110, he said, how is it then that David in the Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 110. So even Jesus would confess that David was moved along by the Spirit to write these words. Now I hope that every single person here understands that you will not be used by the Holy Spirit in that kind of way. You will not write new scripture. You guys got that? You nod, nod your head, please. I don't, we, we I understand that. We're not going to be adding to the canon. God isn't going to use us in that kind of way. However, don't you love that David felt about himself in his life that all he was was an instrument in the hand of God? He felt the Lord is using me. The Lord has put this word in my mouth. The Spirit has caused me to speak and to write these things. He was conscious of the fact that God was the author. God was the artist. God was the communicator. God had something that he wanted to discharge to his people. And David was merely a conduit, an instrument, a vessel, a tool in the hand of the God that wanted to communicate with his people. This is beautiful. 
You understand this when you see a magnificent work of art. If you've ever gotten to do that and then meet the artist, you do not praise the paintbrush or the chisel or the tools that were used to create that work of art. You praise the artist for what they have created, the skill, the detail that they put into it. You celebrate them not the instrument and tool. And that was David. He understood God has things he wants to say. God has done these beautiful things. God has spoken these psalms, and I'm merely an instrument in his hand. I wonder if you this morning are able to see yourself as an instrument in the hand of God. Can can you see the lives of the people around you that the Lord wants to say things to, speak things to, encourage in the people that he wants to help? Can you see yourself as an instrument in the hand of God? of the living God. I just love that about David. He felt he was an instrument in the Lord's hand. But notice also, there's this, there's this third thing, and it's really kind of the bulk of David's last statement. He says a few telling things. He says, you know, God, verse 3, who's a rock? He said, when one rules justly over men and rules in the fear of God, then in verse 4, like we read, He dawns on them like the morning light. And then he pointed to his own house in verse 5 and said, isn't that what's happened in my own house? Does not my own house stand so with God? And then he gave a contrast to others who aren't like that. Now, in a sense, when David does this, it's like a a Holy Spirit-inspired, preemptive word for all of his descendants that were going to come after him. You see, David would hand the kingdom off to his son Solomon. Solomon would hand the kingdom off to his son Rehoboam, and on and on and on. But when Rehoboam was king, there would be a civil sort of divorce in Israel, and the ten northern tribes would pick a new king. But in the south, there would always be a descendant of David seated upon the throne until the Babylonian captivity took place. And during that time, you know, we, we have the record of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles of all these various kings who sat upon the throne of David. Some of them were good. They walked with the Lord, and God blessed the people of Israel. Some of them were evil, did not walk with the Lord, and God had to, because of their cancerous behavior, he couldn't bless it, so he'd have to remove his blessing from their lives. I mean, really, that discipline was his blessing as a way to try to get them to come back to walking in the light and, and obeying him. And what David is saying here is it's kind of like almost a word to his sons and his grandsons to to say, hey, guys, there is this God, my rock, who has said, when you are aligned with me, when you are in step with me, that is the kind of life that I can bless. So be aligned with me, be in step with me, and my blessings will flow out upon your life. David was not only a man in relationship with God, he was not only a man who saw himself as an instrument of God, but he was a man who was in alignment with God. You know, one of the things that we pray is, uh, you know, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, Father, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we're, when we're saying that, in, in a sense, it's like there's this vision of heaven itself. And in heaven, God's name is completely, totally revered and honored, right? I mean, there's no like, 
mixture there. There's no like, well, you know, some of the angels are like kind of into it, you know, then they've got like the lukewarm angels and then like the angels that are really zealous. It's like they're all zealous. They're all into it, right? I mean, that's just what it is in heaven. And God is at the center. What he wills, what he wishes, what he desires, it is done. It happens. So a believer is praying, God, I want to I want to have in my life and in the lives of the people around me and my community, I want to have that similar kind of reverence. First of all, hallowed be your name. That's the prayer. You know, I want your name to be feared, respected, loved, adored, like just everything centered around you. But then also, just like your desire is accomplished in heaven, I want your desire to be accomplished on this earth in my life. You know, your will be done. It's a way of saying, I want to be aligned with you. I want to be aligned with you. I, I don't want to pray my kingdom come. I want to pray your kingdom come. Your will be done. That was David, a man in alignment with God. All right, now let's go on and see some of David's chief uh, men in verse 8 to uh, 17. Uh, we're going to get a list of a bunch of his guys in a little while, but first we get three chief or mighty men in verse 8 to 17. And what you have here is like their name and then one of their chief victories, kind of like a thing that they were really well known for. It wasn't the only thing they ever did, but it was kind of a, a thing that they were most well known for. So let's read the list. It says in verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth was a Tachamanite. He was chief of the three, so kind of the top warrior. He, one time, wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. So that was kind of his big claim to fame. There was this one battle. He was greatly outnumbered, had his spear up against 800 trying to get him, and he had a victory. The Lord blessed him. And next to him, verse 9, among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So he, you know, he, he was the one who won the victory. They got the benefits of it. And next to him, the third guy, was a man named Shammah, the son of A.G. the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. You know, everybody else, all the other Israelite warriors, you know, they're like, well, let's get out of here. It's just a field of lentils. But this guy, Shammah, he just couldn't stand it. So verse 12, he took his stand in the midst of the plot, and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Okay, so those are the three chiefs. Now, those three chiefs had a particular episode that is interesting to the author, so it's recorded. Verse 13, it says, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. So this is a retrospective looking back on the time that he was wandering in the wilderness. He's in the cave of Adullam. Saul's persecuting him before he's king. It says, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, 
David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. That's David's hometown. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. You ever just said something out loud like that? You know, like, oh, what I wouldn't give. You know, if you're from Philly or something, oh, what I wouldn't give for a cheesesteak right now. Or, you know, something like that. That's kind of the idea. He's like remembering the water there in Bethlehem. Oh, what I wouldn't give for some hometown water. Then, verse 16, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things, the three mighty men did. Okay, so that's the record of David's chiefs, his three chiefs. Now, Look, you know, it's not like after this teaching, any of us are going to go out to Salinas and find a field of lettuce or something and defend it with our swords, you know, or something like that. These are, you know, Israeli warriors protecting the promised land in a time before the Messiah had come. It's it's a different era. We live in the church era. However, there are things that the Spirit was producing in their lives that I think if we just consider them, we could see how, they, the, how the Spirit could produce them in our lives as well. Number one, you have this first man, Josheb Bashabeth, quite a name. And he was at one point in a situation where he had his spear and he went up against 800 people. Kind of the idea is this is an incredible victory because he was greatly outnumbered. How many of you have ever been greatly outnumbered in something in your life? You know, maybe numerically outnumbered, maybe financially outnumbered, or maybe you come into places in your life where the skills, the training, the knowledge that you have, the gifts that you have, the ability that you have, it is not sufficient for what's in front of you. Maybe you can relate a little to Joseph Bashabeth with his one spear and 800 people against him and just feeling like, how in the world am I going to be successful here? How can I do this? How can I become strong enough for this? And I, I remember when Christina and I had our last daughter, had, had June, our, Lauren, our oldest, was four, Violet was two and a half, and she cried for the first two and a half years of her life. And then June was born. So we had all these little kids, you know, cruising around. And I just remember it was like, okay, we're outnumbered now, you know? If, at first we had one and it just kind of felt like, you know, teamwork and we, you know, we kind of like, we got this, you know, and then the second was born. It was like, okay, you take her, I'll take her, you know, kind of thing. And then it came to a point where it's just like, okay, well, we lost, you know? <laughs> they won, we lost. It's just survival, you know? It's like success to be able to drive a few miles without falling asleep, you know? Like, this is, we're just making it kind of thing. And you kind of, there, there are moments at least all throughout life. So I think it's just one of the beautiful ways that God has designed life. It's like the second that you have it figured out, you're put up against something else 
you've never done before, you've never experienced before, which forces you to either cry out to the Lord for his strength or to turn to yourself. And Joseph Bashabeth apparently was the kind of man who when that sense, like this is too much for me, which you could experience tomorrow, you could, you, you could experience in your job, you could experience in a million things in life. When that moment comes, this is too much for me, who will you cry out to? Apparently this man sought the Lord, and the Lord gave him a victory. That's kind of the theme throughout this, this uh, section with David's mightiest men. There's a phrase repeated over and over again, and the Lord gave them victory. The Lord's hand was with them. Then you have, secondly, this guy Eliezer. Now, he was interesting because apparently there was this trademark battle that he got in with David, not against David, but with David, fighting with David. But when other people were fleeing, his, his hand, though it was weary, it stuck to the sword. That was kind of the thing that he was known for. It was like this grip on the sword, and he just could it's like he just couldn't let go. It was kind of seen by the people of Israel as this like, like supernatural thing that he just couldn't let go. He just, you know, it was like, a, like the ultimate action movie, you know, kind of thing. Like just one guy, he just, he's going down, but he just can't, you can't beat him, you know, kind of thing. His hand is just stuck to this sword. And I'm, I'm sure there's something beautiful there about thinking about the New Testament and how we learn that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So keep your life centered upon the Scripture, the Word of God. But the thing that I love about this man is simply that the Lord deposited into his body an endurance that was so far beyond what was natural to himself. My prayer is that we would be a people who consider the character trait of endurance to be one of the most beautiful character traits that God could work in a human being. A as one generation used to call it, a stick to A thing where God just works in us to say, you know, just because something is difficult or hard or painful does not mean that it's time for me to give up. In fact, we are to be a people who believe Romans chapter 5, verse 2 and following, which tells us that when we suffer, we, there's a part of us that rejoices in them, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And then character produces hope. Just this belief that, you know, God's kingdom is coming, God is doing a work, God will, Christ will return, that kind of hope inside of our hearts. But endurance, the Spirit making this man into someone who could keep on going, even though it was difficult and hard. And then finally, you have this third figure, Shammah. I really like this guy. You know, he, he uh, you know, something happened to him. You know, the Philistines cruised into town, and it was, you know, this is the time where Saul is still on the throne. And so the Philistines would wait till harvest came, and then they would come in, and they would steal the harvest from the people of Israel. And so this was happening again, and the Philistines came, and everybody else, it was just kind of like customary, you know, like we go, we plow, we plant, we water, we grow, the crop's there, we're ready to go get it, we get it, we harvest it, the big pile is there, and then the Philistines are like, hey, we're here for lunch. And everybody just said, oh man, they caught us, they found out, and they would leave. But Shama, there was just this one day where he's like, mm-mm, that's not happening. I'm going to put myself in the middle of this field of lentils, 
And, and the, these lentils, this field, it's part of the promised land, by the way. God gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm part of that team. And then this is the food that belongs to us. I'm going to defend it. And God blessed him. God strengthened him. And he defended that plot of ground. I've always, I've always loved this character because, look, like I said earlier, you're probably not going to go out to a field right now after the service and like literally defend that field. However, there are and there is field or ground that the Lord has given to you. I mean, he's given you your body, right? You know, you, you, you are you, everything inside of this skin of yours. He's given that to, to you to be a steward of, but, but there's people that he's put in your life, finances that he's put in your life. This man said, look, this, this, this is my responsibility. I don't know about everybody else running from their fields, but, but this is my field, and I'm going to take care of this field. And he found God's strength to be able to do so. What field, what ground has God put in your life? What family, what relationships, what calling has God put in your life? What has the Lord entrusted into your care? He wants to strengthen you to be able to defend that, to keep that, to protect that for him. And then finally, there's this little story here where David just has this like thing where one day he's like, oh man, I, I would just love to have some water from Bethlehem. It was under Philistine occupation at the time. And, and I think what's happening here is I think that these you got to remember, these are like the special forces of David's army. I think that these guys just like looked down into Bethlehem and they saw it occupied by Philistines. And I think that for them, this was like fun. Like we're so skilled. We're just going to go in. We're going to take some water for David. Like we love this guy. He said he wants some water. We're just going to go get a skin of water from that well. Like we can do this. We're, we're more highly trained than these Philistine guys. We'll go in. We'll get that water. They go in, the three of them. They're like, this is great. You know, they're on this little mission. They come back. They bring it to David. And David takes that water, and it just hit him, it looks like, like a ton of bricks. You know, because he, I, I think what was happening for him is that he just saw this, and he felt no one should have followers like this. No one should have devotion like this except for the Lord. And so he just took that water and he, he says, I can't even drink this myself. I'm going to receive your devotion to me like devotion to the Lord. And so I'm going to take this water and I'm going to pour it out as a drink offering to God. And sometimes I read this and I think, man, were those guys disappointed? You know, they did this whole thing. They're like, taste it, taste it. And he's like, I can't taste it. And he pours it out. But I think they were probably incredibly blessed that David looked at them and said, I see this, what you've done, as a sacrifice to the living God. When I read of these men, I've always loved it because what you have in these guys is you just have this thing where they just said, his wish is our command. You know, so, so many times the way believers follow the Lord is so unlike this. So many times the way the believers follow the Lord is, is more of a question of what am I allowed to get away with? What, what, are the, what are the bare minimums of service to the Lord? 
You know, so sometimes someone will ask a question like, what, what does the Bible say about tithing or something like that? You know, and it's like, because what I want to do is I want to get on my calculator and I just want to do the bare minimum, like give me a number, you know, kind of thing. Instead of, Father, what are you saying to me, your child? What is your wish? What is your desire? What is your longing? Man, I want to serve the Lord this way. Just whatever the desire of his heart is, that we would follow that. So these guys, they just please David's heart. Okay, now let's read the rest of the chapter. And there's a bunch of names here, and I'm going to give it my best shot, okay? It's not all that easy. Why don't you come up here and try it? But, uh, and we're saying all these names wrong anyways, you know. Uh, they didn't call him David, you know. It's like David, you know, or something like that. But anyways, I'm going to read these stories. And I'm going to read every name. I'm going to read every name. I know some people might just kind of get to it and like, hey, you know, it's a list, all these people. I'm going to read every name, though, because I'll tell you what, if my name was in it, I'd want you guys to read it. If your name was in it, wouldn't you want everybody to read it out loud, you know? So God loves these guys. He put them in here. So let's, let's read this list together. It says, verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the 30. He wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So you have Abishai here. He went up against a big number two, uh, not 800, but 300. And he, he was a top guy for David, but not in the level of the three chiefs. And then verse 20, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabziel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials, which probably is a word that means lion-like distinguished warriors. He struck down two of these warriors of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Okay. And verse 21, he struck down an Egyptian. By the way, it says he was a handsome man. That guy was handsome. So this Egyptian comes down, they're like, man, he's coming to kill us, but he is really handsome too. <laughs> the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three, the first three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. And now here's where we get the long list. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Elika of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anathoth. Mebunai, the Hushathite. Zalmon, the Ahohite. Maharai of Netophah. Helub, the son of Baana of Netophah. Ittai, the son of Ribai, of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hiddai, of the brooks of Geash, Abai Albon, the Arbathite, Asmapheth, of Baharim, Eliabah, the Shaalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahasbai of Maacah, 
Aliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Paari, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai of Beroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. There they are. Yeah. We were, at, we were at, our, at our life group a couple of weeks ago, and we, there was one of the studies in the life of David where the last few verses was David's team, and it was all these really difficult names to pronounce. And so our leader was just saying like, hey, you know, let's just read through it, and whenever you feel like you want to read, just, you know, you read, and then read as far as it seems logical to stop, and then, you know, someone else. So I picked up one of the last sections, and I knew I could just keep going. I could cover all these names. But I just read a few verses, and then right before I got to the names, I just pointed at one of my buddies, and I was like, your turn, bro. And uh, it was really fun. So, okay, let's just think about a couple of things, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. First, think about Abishai and Benaiah. Okay, a couple things about them. First of all, Abishai, he, he, his trademark victory was 1 versus 300. But Benaiah didn't have that kind of, you know, those types of odds. He had all these individual impressive victories. Uh, he defeated those two lion-like warriors of Moab. Uh, there was a day where he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Probably what happened there was David and his guys had like a you know, there was a lot of men, so they probably had a pit at one point where they kept a lot of grain or something like that. And this day unfolded where the food was in there and it snowed and, and a lion fell into the pit, maybe a mountain lion or something like that. And, you know, they're, they're all thinking like, we got to eat, we got to get the food, we got to take care of this, what are we going to do? And Benaiah volunteered himself, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll take care of this thing, you know. Um, and then an Egyptian, the handsome guy, you know, tall, you know, spectacular guy comes out. So you got Abishai, you know, against a multitude, but Benaiah against individuals. And, and then all of them, it says over and over again for both of these guys, they were great. They, they were really high up there amongst David's men, but they did not attain to the first three. So what I wanted to point out is simply that these Men, there were different gifts and there were different callings. There were different gifts and there were different callings. We see this in the New Testament. You know, those two men didn't have the same gifts. One goes out against many people and one is a kind of a specialist. They had different gifts. And then they had different callings. They didn't attain to the first three. Even Jesus followed this format. He had his 12 disciples, but he organized them. I don't know if you know this, but he organized them in groups of uh, three groups of four. Every time you see a list of Jesus' disciples, it's always four, four, and four, but those four are sometimes rearranged, but it's always the same four, the next same four, the next same four. And all the others could have, you know, when Jesus was spending time with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he could, they could have complained about that, or when spending time especially with Peter, James, and John, or sometimes just time with Peter, they could, there could have been this complaint about it, but there are different callings that the Lord has upon our lives. It's not for us to complain about that. It's just for us to be faithful with whatever the Lord has deposited into our care and into our trust. 
So they had different gifts and callings. Also, though, what I want you to see is that God honored them for their service. God honored them for their service. That's why their names are recorded here, and that's why, frankly, why we read their names. Because for God, this was a way to say, these men served David, and by serving David, they were serving me. I honor those who devote their lives to serving me. And when we think of that, we should not be thinking of inside the walls of the church. That could be one way that a person serves the Lord, but we should be thinking about the entirety of our lives. How am I serving the Lord just in my day-to-day experience? But here's the last thing I want to leave you with. These men, in what they did, Not only was God honoring them, but there's something about the way that they live which should help us see that they were honoring David and in so doing were honoring God. There's kind of this mood that some people have about serving the Lord where it's kind of like this perspective like, it is so hard, it is so painful that people who give their lives to the service of the Lord, they are like these heroes where they're just, they're, it's just miserable to serve God, but they do it. You know, praise the Lord. But these men, if you'd have talked with them, they would have recounted, they'd have said, you know, there was this time we were in distress, indebted, discontented, and Saul was leading Israel into an absolute train wreck, and we left. And we went out to David out at the cave of Adullam, and he graciously took us in. Our numbers were growing day by day. And he began to offer to train us, to teach us what he knew. And we began to grow. Our skills began to grow. We went out into these little test battles, and we started seeing that our strength was growing. And it was an absolute delight to serve, you know, at his pleasure. In the New Testament, there's a phrase that is used. Paul used it of himself many times. Jude used it. Peter used it when they would write their letters. They would call themselves bondservants of Christ. To be a bondservant is different than being a servant or a slave. You see, in the the Old Testament era, a slave or a servant, there was an expiration. They would sometimes, if you were in debt, you couldn't pay your debts, you'd volunteer yourself and enter into servitude. But then there was a time where it was over with. And you could walk away. But if you loved your master, then you could declare yourself a bondservant if they would have you. And if that was the case, then they would take you and put your ear up against the door and they would pierce your ear and you'd wear an earring. And that was the earring of a bondservant. Peter and Paul and and Jude spoke of themselves as bondservants of Christ. Now think about it. When a bondservant was cruising around, you know, like in the marketplace or something like that, if you saw a bondservant with that earring, you you probably wouldn't say to yourself like, whoa, there's one of those hardcore servants. You know, they're just like, they they just love serving. So no, what you would think is you'd think to yourself, you must have had some kind of amazing situation that you would volunteer yourself for life to serve underneath that leader. You see, when a man or a woman says to the Lord, Lord, I will follow you. Lord, I will serve you. That's the way that it ought to be. A person is saying, you are so worthy for me to follow that I give my life completely to you. It's not 
uh, it's not a, a, an, an action that is meant to bring praise to the self, but praise to the Lord. It's not a hallelujah, but a hallelujah. It's thanking the Lord, God, for what you've done in my life. I'm going to give my life to you. And that's what these men were. They brought honor to the name of their king by devoting themselves completely to him. So, man, just beautiful to think about these characters. And I believe that the Lord wants to put these types of attributes in our hearts and in our lives as well. So maybe for you, you're just thinking, man, I want to I make a difference for the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. So let's just kind of pray that prayer of dedication to God uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.